Well, good morning. I always stand before you uh, when I'm doing these minor prophet things with a little bit of trepidation. Uh, I know that we as a church preach through books of the Bible. And for some reason, I have the worst record when it comes to figuring out which books of the Bible to preach through. Because I chose the minor prophets and I don't know if you noticed, I mean, just going through Hosea and now the first half of Joel, it's not the most uplifting stuff you may have ever heard in your life. I was talking to my sister last night and I said, I get to preach a positive sermon tomorrow from the book of Joel, from a minor prophet of the Old Testament. She said, there's positive things in minor prophets in the Old Testament. And I have to say, that's a pretty common understanding. And if you've been with me for the entirety of this, you've probably come to a similar conclusion. I've said all so- I've had to preach on all sorts of very strange texts and words that have, well, little negative connotations for us. You see, prophets have this kind of reputation of being critical. Uh, you, you've probably noticed this, right? You, you've probably, it's not just the minor prophets. The major prophets do it too. The big, thick major prophets and the little, tiny minor prophets, they all complain all the time. And it looks horrible because we don't like when other people complain, do we? I mean, do, do you like it when other people complain? Yeah, see? No, of course not. Now, that's really strange because almost everybody seems to enjoy complaining. They just don't like it when other people do it. So why why are we going through books of the Bible that seem to be mostly complaints? Well, there's a very simple reason, and it's it's actually the reason behind the sermon today. The, uh, if I can give you the sermon in a sentence, and I'll do that in a minute, but if I'm going to give you the sentence in the shortest sentence I possibly can... Here's the entire sermon. God is good. Amen. God is good. You see, when we complain, when we talk about the negative things we see in the world around us, when we see all of the bad things that are going on, we're not complaining because we're necessarily godly people. Okay, maybe you guys are. I'm probably not. I'm complaining because other people don't meet my standards. And if I stop and think about that for a second, that's probably a good thing because my standards aren't the greatest. I mean, you may may know that my my habits of things that I actually watch watch on TV, the things that I enjoy reading, the things that I look at on my computer, you should know that my standards aren't exactly the highest. But all of us have our own standards and we apply them to other people and that's where our complaining comes in. Prophets are different. You see, the reason for a prophet, the reason that a prophet is so complaining, so negative, so, well, so much of a downer, isn't because he's complaining based on his own standards. He's he's complaining based on God's. That's why it's recorded in the Word of God. That's why we call it part of the Word of God. It's a reflection of God's understanding of the ways that God's people haven't lived up to God's standards. And God is good. His standards are the right standards. 
His desires for us are the standards we need, the desires we should be having for ourselves. His desires for our friends and our family and the societies we live in, his standards are the right ones. And so when you see in the prophets them castigating the people of Israel for failing to meet standards, it's not the prophet's standards, it's God's standards that they're failing to meet. But it's not mere complaining because God is good. Here is the full sentence of the sermon. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down because I'm hoping that by God's grace, if I manage to get through the whole thing, this will be a full map of everything that is in the sermon. God is good. So he forgives, he redeems, and he blesses. And that means for us, we should repent, trust, and worship. So like any good Baptist pastor, I am going to speak with three points, a story, and three applications. So exactly what you just heard. And all of this, all of this, you can see in the text of Joel chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. I, I, uh, I apologize to Jeff. I had him read the entirety of Joel chapter 2, or well, the first most of chap- Joel chapter 2 for a very simple reason. It helps us to understand what's going on here. Remember that for the majority of Joel, Joel 1 and Joel 2, Joel has been talking about the disaster that has befallen Israel. A disaster that is being said is because they have been godless. They have thought that they were following God, but in fact, they were just following their own desires. Uh, Church, be careful about that. That's something we should probably notice. You can be very godly. You can have all of the outward appearances of being godly and still have hearts far away from God. I was speaking this morning with a guy in the lobby. He was telling me that at one of the churches that he went to, uh, everybody has to wear a suit and ties. And I, I, that's, that's a good idea. I mean, I, I look good in a suit. I can't wear a tie. My neck is too thick. But I, I look good. It, it, that's nice. But if you put it like that, sometimes I worry that we in churches, n- not so much putting on the suit and tie, we do it in our own hearts. Like, how many of you really talk about the struggles you're having? How many of us really talk about the fact that we've got sin in our lives that we're dealing with? Instead, we, we come on Sunday morning and we pretend to be perfect, and we're not. And that's what Joel chapter 2, 1 to 17 is talking about. The people of Israel are shown to be in trouble. They're, they're not godly, and they're being under, thrown under by locusts and by Nations, other, other coming in and destroying them and making them starve. And then in verse 16 and 17, it calls the people of Israel to repentance and to prayer. And then comes verse 18. And in eight, verses 18 and 19, we see the first point. Because God is good, God forgives. Then the Lord became jealous for his land 
and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Now, let's be clear here. Israel hadn't fixed the past. They hadn't completely cleaned themselves up. The only thing that Joel had called them to do is to stand and pray and turn away from their wickedness and live and seek after God. Pray for forgiveness. And God, facing (laughs) their really messed up people, Instead of saying, well, you know, you guys, you should clean up a little bit. And once you've cleaned up a little bit, then I'll accept you back. No, immediately he says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. It's based in God himself, God's goodness. It's not based in the fact that the people of Israel are good. It's because God is good and he calls his people to trust in him. He will no longer make them a reproach. As as their desire switches, so does God's desire for them. No more does he want to show them the negatives of disobedience. He wants to show them the positives of following. He will no longer make them a reproach. You see, God's baseline, the, the basic of what you should know about God... You've heard this, I've said it a couple of times, it's from Deuteronomy, you know, behold, the, behold God. Uh, you remember the story, Moses says, God, show me your glory, and God says, yeah, you, you can't handle that. I'll cover you over and you, I'll walk by you. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast mercy and goodness. And then he says that he will forgive, that he will trust, that he, has, that he has mercy on his people. And yet, by yet no means, lets the guilty go unpunished. There's a bit of a conundrum there. We'll deal with it in a minute. It'll come up. But be clear, God is good. The reason that the people of Israel faced God's punishment isn't because God is bad and is twisting his mustache, hoping to find ways to destroy his people. No, he's a good God, and so he can't allow evil to continue forever, even by people he loves, because he's good. His baseline is goodness, and he is merciful. He forgives because he is good. That's the first point. Now, based on that first point, I'll deal with it a little bit more when we get to the applications, but be be clear here. God forgives. He is good, so he forgives. So right now, if you are living in sin, if you have things that that you don't like about yourself, things that you know God would dislike, this means you should turn to him. This means that you don't need to wait until you're perfect. You don't need to wait until you have cleaned yourself up adequately. You don't need to look good in a suit for God to take you in. 
You don't need to be able to fit into a tie. You don't need God to see you as beautiful in and of yourself because, well, to be honest, your beauty is a reflection of his anyway. He's good, so he forgives. But I'll deal with more of that later. But he doesn't merely forgive. Look at the text. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. Now, uh, just remember, uh, keep in mind all of the things that have happened before this. The stuff that Jeff read about in the first 17 verses and the stuff that's actually in chapter 1 about, you know, all sorts of things that have gone wrong in Israel. Keep those in mind. But Joel says in verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you, the northerner who just invaded, and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication and has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Redemption is a big word, and it's often used as a churchy word. What we see here is what God means by redemption. I, I hate to break this to you, and you know, I, I'm sure if you've lived fairly long in the world, you know this, but sin has consequences. The bad things we do have consequences. They cause results in our lives and in the lives of those we care about, and we're not powerful enough to change that for the good. We're not strong enough to redeem the past. None of us do time travel. Um, depending on your philosophical perspective on time, that might even be impossible. But we can't fix the past. The best we can do is to come to God and say that we won't be in trouble in the future. But here's the thing. God is good. More than good, God is glorious and powerful. And the things that you can't fix, he can. The things that you can't change, he will. My favorite verse in the Bible is actually Romans 8, 28. And this is going to be important at this point. All things work together for the good of those who love and serve the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Um... All things comes from the old Greek word meaning all. I'm told it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. All. All things. Brothers and sisters, 
people who don't know yet know Jesus? Everything in your life can be turned for good. Everything. Those things that you are deathly afraid of, that you, in the middle of the night, I know that I have, I've had some of these things, so I know other people sometimes have these things. Things that you remember from years and years and years ago, and you remember them, and you get that feeling of embarrassment again for the fact that you went through that. God won't merely forget it. He doesn't merely wipe it away. It's one of the all things that will work together for the good of those who love and serve him and are called according to his purposes. God will glorify himself through the very things that you used to to rebel against him. I mean, this is one of the things that Satan really, really hates about the universe. No matter how much he rebels against the God of the universe, God is in the business of redemption. He takes things that are broken and destroyed and makes them beautiful. If you today think your life is ruined beyond repair, maybe for you, Maybe for me, maybe all of the the sciences of humanity could come together and not be able to fix the things in your life that are separating you from God and that are slowly destroying you. But I'll tell you who can, God. And not only can he, he does. Brothers and sisters, God redeems it's always tempting for us to imagine that it's too late, isn't it? We, we, sit, and we, we sit and we say, it's, it's too late for this thing to have happened in my life. It's too late for God to do this good thing for me. Again, if it were humans that we're talking about, sure, it could be too late. Humans are pretty flimsy creatures. We live like, what, 100, 120 years if we're lucky? But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When when we say that he has the cattle on 10,000 hills, that's an underestimation. Time is his creature. He created it. While we are bounded by it, he stands over it. And so as bad as things can be, and I don't know where you guys are. I don't know how bad things are in your lives. I don't know what kinds of things you're worried about. It doesn't matter. God is greater. And he's in the business of redemption. And though I, I, I do have to add something here. Sometimes we as believers tend to be, we're impatient we live in time, so we imagine that things aren't complete yet, so they will never be complete. God is big, will carry through to completion the thing he has started in you. Right now. 
as you are dealing with all sorts of things, God knows the end point. Even as you struggle right now, you may have health issues, you may have sin issues, you may have issues with people in your family doing horrible things to you, and you're saying, how long, God? How long? And I I have to say, I don't know how long. I don't. But I do know that's a limited time. It will not be forever because God is in the business of redemption. I mean, if you look at the text from 220 to 25 and you put it next to all of the negatives that you see in chapter 1 and 2, God reverses them all. Not in a way that makes it that they never happened, but in the way that it shows who God is. That they can see that God works. Friends, just because right now we are part of the creation groaning together for the redemption that's to come, it will come. I'll use another verse from Romans chapter 8. I really like Romans chapter 8. Just going to throw that out there. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. And just, just be careful here. When we say groan inwardly, I don't mean like a little tiny sigh. Groaning inwardly means that you really feel the problem. You really feel the sin in your life. You really feel the damage that's been done by sin. We groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Now, again, that actually is gender neutral, so that means sons and daughters. So all of us are covered. The redemption of our bodies. There will come a day when this will be no more. All of the things that we struggle with now will go away. They'll be like fog. We know about fog, don't we? We live in Newfoundland. You know how fog works. It looks, and we have real fog. You know, the kind of fog that you can't, can't cut through with a bullet. The kind of fog you can't see three centimeters in front of your face. It's really, really thick. And then the sun rises, and it's like three minutes. And it's gone as if it was never there. Our groaning, our problems, our difficulties will be like that because that's how God operates. Because we are kind of dumb. We like to believe that if we managed to, if we are going through, if everything's good, we'd like to pretend that it came about based on our own power. And God, being glorious, wants to show us his glory and so is going to overcome that particular little peccadillo of humans. There will come a day when everything will change. Everything will be made right. Everything will be made new. And we won't be able to say it was us. We'll just be able to point to God. But I'm... I'm, I'm going too slowly here. I need to go a little faster. I apologize. Finally, God blesses because God 
is good. You see, what God desires for us is goodness. What God desires for us is blessing. He desires for us to know him and know him completely. He desires for us to no longer be racked with sin and with death. And he even in this day and age will give us foretastes of this. Look at Joel chapter 2 verses 26 and 27. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. God doesn't merely stop with making things okay. He wants to give it so that our cup of blessing overflows for eternity. He desires for us to have the ultimate blessing, his presence. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. Brothers, sisters, God doesn't merely want you to be happy with that things are okay. He wants you to know the blessing of knowing him, the infinite glorious blessing of being in his presence, the infinite glorious blessing of having all of your needs dealt with. That is not now, but it will come. And uh, again, you know, previews of coming attractions. You'll notice the end uh, that right after this, the passage that I didn't preach from today. I'll preach from it next time I'm up. You, you, those of you who are Pentecostals may recognize it. It's the part that Peter quotes right after the day of Pentecost. Because all of this, the foretaste, the reason that we know that this is true, the reason that we know that it's coming is because, well, the promise has already been partially fulfilled. When Peter quoted this about the coming of the Holy Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2, I think it is, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 2, yeah, had to look to the senior pastor. I'm merely an associate yet. Yeah, when you look at that, that means that God has already begun to fulfill this. These promises we see in Joel chapter 2 are already coming to fruition in our lives. Though we see in a glass darkly now, there will come a day when we shall see face to face when the blessing will be real and will be undeniable. So what do we do? The three applications that I am contractually obligated to give you. I, made, I wrote the contract right at the beginning. Remember I told you I'd give you three. First of all, repent because God is good. <clears throat> This is the hardest of the three, uh, uh, well, okay, the immediately diff most difficult of the three uh, applications because it means that we need to actually look at the things in our lives that are not following God. 
the things that we place in our lives and in our hearts that we use as more valuable than God, the desires that we, the devices and the desires of our own hearts that separate us from God even now. But God is good, so he forgives. You don't need to wait another microsecond. If you don't know God right now, you don't need to wait very long. You can repent even in your heart now. In fact, you can, it can happen so quickly, it might happen before I, before I could even have a, an altar call to bring you forward. You could just simply turn to God and it's done. Because he's forgiving. He's good, so he will forgive you. And again, I don't know what sins you have in your lives. I might be disgusted by it. I don't know. You'd probably be disgusted by mine. But it doesn't matter. Christ died on the cross to pay for sin for all of us. Your forgiveness is a given if you merely turn to him. So there is no reason to wait. If you want to know God, just turn to him. That was the first application. The second application is easier. Only mildly, by the way. Trust, because God is good. Believer, if today you're suffering, I know suffering is real. I'm not going to tell you that suffering is not real. It is. Mental suffering is real. Physical suffering is real. Emotional suffering is real. We live in a sinful world. These are real feelings, and I'm not going to tell you to pretend they're not there. They are. This is one of the beautiful things about Christianity, by the way. We don't pretend that bad things don't happen to good people. They do. It just does happen. There are no good people, really, so that's probably why the bad things happen to us. But still, we imagine that if we had turned to Jesus, then uh, everything should be better. I should, be, I should know healing. I should be walking in the victory. And maybe we should at some level. But let's face it, we still live in the sinful world. The redemption that is to come is not yet. The full number of the redeemed has not come in yet. And the reason I know that is because, well, Christ hasn't returned yet. When he does, this is over. But until that time, we may have to live in suffering. We may have to groan inwardly, as Romans says. But trust, God is still good. God didn't stop being good at any point. He will still bring this to an end. He still will, he still will bring this to redemption. Your redemption is sure even if it isn't yet present. Finally, because God is good, rejoice in God. I don't know how to say this more clearly. We are to enjoy God. We can look to him and know that we have nothing between us God has no beef with us. That was extinguished in Christ. God has no reason to hate you. If you simply place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, 
you are reconciled to God. And so you can rejoice in him. You can look to him, see the beauty of who he is, and still praise him for it. There is no reason to be scared. There is no reason to be isolated. There is no reason to avoid him. And he is beautiful. He is good. His standards are altogether beautiful. His love for you is pure. Friends, he is good. So rejoice. You see, that's what it means to worship, is to rejoice in God. Uh, I know that we call the, sometimes call the music sections of this service the worship. Uh, I, I know that the worship team actually really hates that. But there's a reason we do that. It's not just singing that's worship. Any way that you enjoy God is worship. It's easy to do with the singing because, you know, we're talking about God directly with music. That's usually very easy to enjoy God with. But everything we do in life is designed in some way to be a worship for God. And all it is is to rejoice in who he is, in all the things that he does for you, all of the things that he does for me, all of the things that he is for us. So let's worship together. And let's pray to that end. Lord God, as I finish speaking about your goodness and your glory in, in the word, I recognize that you, well, you're far greater than anything I could ever say. As eloquent as I am, you are far greater than me. So I pray that the people here have actually gotten a glimpse of who you are. Use my trembling lips to at least bring people to know your glory, to see your goodness, to repent of their sin, to trust in you, and then to worship you. So pray in Jesus' name.